So John chapter 11, verses 38 to 53. This is God's word. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha and the sister of the dead man said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. This is God's word. Well, some of us um, at the speed with which we've been going through the Gospel of John may have been wondering whether Lazarus was ever going to get raised from the dead. And he is today. We're up to this beautiful story where Lazarus is finally getting raised from the dead. This moment of Lazarus being raised from the dead is really the climax of these signs that Jesus performs, remembering that the first half of the Gospel of John is largely about these signs that Jesus is doing. The signs are these actual events that occur that are pointing to a greater reality. And this sign of Lazarus, who was stone cold dead, being raised from the death is the climax of the signs of Jesus. In it, we will see the redemptive work of Christ that has a lot to do with death and life. So last week we saw the grief of Martha and Mary. And while we know that Lazarus will be raised from the dead, let us not miss the reality of the grief and the sorrow that would have been heavy upon the family of Lazarus. We have to remember of all people in this moment in history where it's normal for people to to live well into their 80s and 90s, it's abnormal for someone to die earlier than 50. We tend to suppress the reality of death, but we must... Remember that death is not pretty. That should be a redundant thing to say, but we should remind ourselves that death is very ugly. Death carries a lot of sorrow. 
Our hope in a resurrection does not mean that we don't feel the sting of death now. We still feel the sting of death. So infants should not be dying in infancy. People ought not to be dying horrible, horrible deaths where disease eats away at their bodies and finally death comes as a relief to them. This should not be, and it won't be, in the new heavens and new earth. But we must remember now that death is an ugly symptom of this fallen world. And praise be to God that there is coming a time where death will be completely done away with. But we should remember that for now, death does have a sting. That passage that Paul quotes from in 1 Corinthians 15 is for a future time. And we're hoping for that time where death will no longer have a sting. But for now, there is a heaviness and a great sorrow that comes with death. So this is the context of Mary and Martha. This is what Jesus has entered into. In the midst of this heavy grief, he comes in. We saw last week that Jesus amazingly has been weeping himself. How beautiful is that? That Jesus has been weeping. People look upon his sorrow and see how much he loved Lazarus. Now in verse 38 from our passage, we read Jesus being deeply moved. This is that sense of righteous anger. Remember, this is like this involuntary reaction, this gut reaction within Jesus being deeply moved within himself is it's literally meaning when a a horse snorts. So sometimes it's translated as having indignation. It's a sense of righteous anger. Jesus has a sense of righteous anger now as he sees the reality of death and the devastation of sin upon this world that he has made. And so there is this sense of righteous anger and you can hear it as then the next verse he comes in and he says, take away the stone. I mean, he commands this. You can see it's just building up within him. And so he commands Martha, take away the stone. Now, although Martha has just confessed Jesus to be the Christ who will bring the resurrection, the prospect of Lazarus's decomposed body is simply too much. So Martha says, no, 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 don't do it. Don't roll away the stone. At this stage, he's going to stink. That's effectively what she says. It would be a humiliating thing to see his exposed dead body again. So no one here is thinking that anything good can happen from rolling away the stone. Just like we would naturally think it's probably not a good idea if someone has the crazy idea of digging someone up from the grave. That's absurd. And that's what Jesus is asking for here. He's been dead for four days. And he says, take away the stone. Jesus reminds Martha after she has her first objection. Martha, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Now, Martha demonstrates great faith in Jesus. That's all it takes. Finally, she consents to rolling the stone away. She consents to Lazarus, her dead brother's body, now being exposed again. And here before Jesus raises Lazarus, he prays. And so he says here from verse 41, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. So here it seems Jesus has already prayed for this. That's the language that's here. It's past tense. He's already prayed. It seems like he totally understands that uh, the father's will is to raise Lazarus from the dead. 
He has already prayed for this, so he has great assurance. And notice he specifically says, I'm praying this out loud so that all these people around would see that you, Father, have sent me. Now, elsewhere, Jesus specifically teaches us not to pray that we would be seen by others. He says, don't be like the Gentiles who pray specifically to be seen by others. And yet Jesus here is praying specifically to be heard by others. He intentionally prays out loud so that everyone can hear what he's saying. And the point of this isn't to, in an arrogant way, draw attention to himself, obviously. The point, rather, is to draw others into this intimate communion that he has with the Father. That's what's going on here. He's drawing them in to this intimate communion that he has with the Father. Along with showing this intimacy, his point is that everyone there would know that what is about to happen has its origin within this eternal relationship with the Father. Jesus is not operating solo. So what is about to happen flows from this eternal relationship that he has with the Father, where Jesus is undertaking the work that he and the Father had planned from before the foundation of the world, that he has been sent in the world to do. So notice here, Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead is meant to show all these people around that Jesus, as God's son, delights to accomplish the Father's will. He loves to do the Father's will. And we've already read in chapter 6, verse 40, that the Father's will is that everyone that who, who looks upon the Son and believes in him will be raised to eternal Life. So this prayer is just filling in the background of this redemptive work that Christ is accomplishing. And we're about to see the fuller picture of this as Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. So this is just background. Now, as we come to verse 43, Jesus here approaches the tomb and he cries out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Probably the loudest voice that Lazarus had ever heard. The word here for crying out. Now, John is very particular with his words. And this word is only used uh, five or six times in John's gospel. And it's perhaps the loudest word that you could use for a loud shout. It's used here, and notice if you just flip over to the next page in chapter 12, verse 13. The only other time it's used in a positive sense toward Jesus is where people in chapter 12 cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, as they are praising his name. Now, the other three or four times that it's used in John's gospel will be the Jews screaming out, crucify him. That is the only other times that it will be used. So while the Jews shout for his death, Jesus here shouts for life to come. So Jesus screams out with a loud bellowing voice, the kind of voice that sinks into the pit of your soul. And he says, Lazarus, come out. And amazingly, Lazarus, who has been dead for four days, is raised to life. He walks out of the tomb to everyone's utter astonishment. Now, this is glorious in and of itself. This is an incredible miracle. Lazarus has undoubtedly been dead for four days. He is raised to life. He walks out. 
As glorious as this is, it is pointing to far more glorious realities. It's pointing to something far more glorious than simply Lazarus being raised from the dead. It is pointing to the reality of what Jesus has come to do, namely to call forth dead, lifeless souls to have new life in him. And this happens both spiritually and physically. This is the new birth and then the hope of the physical resurrection. This is what Lazarus being raised from the dead is pointing to, this reality of a spiritual and a physical resurrection that we experience as those who trust in Jesus Christ. So remember in John chapter 5, a bit of background for us. In John chapter 5, when Jesus speaks of the resurrection, in John chapter 5, verse 25, Jesus says, An hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. So he says, an hour is coming and it's here. When the dead are going to hear the voice of the Son of God and they're going to live. That's happening now. He also says, after this, an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So there is a time, as Jesus is saying this, that's happening then when the dead are going to hear his voice and live. And I believe that is the spiritual resurrection. But there is also a time later when people buried in the tombs, buried six feet under, will hear the voice of the risen Christ and they will live. And they will be brought to the resurrection of life or resurrection of judgment. They will either enter into the joy of their master or they will face condemnation entering into eternity in hell. Now, in the raising of Lazarus from the dead, we see both the spiritual and physical aspect of this. So let's look firstly at the spiritual aspect. This spiritual resurrection, the voice of Christ calling Lazarus out of the grave points to our spiritual resurrection where Christ calls us to have new spiritual life in him. Now notice that this presupposes that we are dead. That's the teaching here. This presupposes that we are dead. So how is it that we who are conscious, breathing, some of us very athletic, we look like we're alive, and yet how is it that we are dead? How is it that we are dead? Well, this is the reality of our spiritual state. We are dead to the things of God. We are unable to live in a way that is pleasing to God. We are riddled with complete apathy to the core of our bones that we live in absolute ignorance to our Creator, to the one who gives us breath every single day in our natural state. Paul describes this in Ephesians 2 by saying, You... You new Christians, you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked. This is the result of sin so corrupting us. This is the reality that no one wants to accept, yet this is the reality of our natural state that we are dead in sin. It's not like we're well-meaning individuals that just sort of got lost on our spiritual quest innocently and we just need some help. No, we rebelled to a state of death and we do not want to follow God. That's our reality. We are dead. Paul says, by nature, we are children of wrath. By nature. Isn't that incredible? He refers to 
little children as being children of wrath. God's wrath is upon them. There is nothing within us that has any sense of life or inclination toward God. So our spiritual state is like Lazarus being dead in a tomb in a cold, dark area, completely lifeless and completely unaware and unable to follow God at all because we are dead. We are wrapped in these filthy grave clothes of sin. We are in no way able to ask anything of God because we are dead. Now, the good news is that in that same passage in Ephesians 2, Paul goes on to say, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. How is it that we in our spiritual state have been made alive? The voice of Christ shouted into the very depths of our soul and called us to come out of our life of sin and receive the forgiveness that is only found in him. Even with an inaudible voice, if possible, a gentle whisper, it is a loud shout to cold, dead, lifeless souls to come out of their sin and to trust in Jesus Christ. Now, here is an implication from this that we have to understand. Jesus has not come to help our existing life. That's not the goal of Jesus. He has not come to give you a better life now to sort of upgrade your existing life. He has not come to offer helpful advice for struggling people. Jesus has come for dead, lifeless souls. That's who he has come for. Dead, lifeless souls. Jesus has come for those of us who are so rebellious at our core that spiritually speaking, we are buried six feet under and completely incapable of coming to him lest his booming voice shouts so loud into the pits of our stomach that we are brought to life. And when the voice of Christ comes into our lifeless souls, life follows. How beautiful is it that just... As at the beginning of creation, remembering from the early accounts of Genesis, there was nothing. God spoke and then there was something. He said, let there be light and there was light. Likewise, as Jesus brings about the new creation in us, he speaks and he says, let there be life. And all of a sudden, out of death, there is life. That same voice that brought about creation is the same voice that brings about the new creation in us as we are brought to new spiritual Life. So just as Lazarus is brought out of the tomb into the presence of Christ, so we come out of our condemnation, out of our filthy grave clothes, and we come into the warm embrace of our Savior. Charles Wesley captures this so well in the, the fourth stanza of our song, And Can It Be, that we'll sing later on, when he says, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. It is this beautiful picture of a, a dungeon being shackled to death, shackled to sin until the, the light of Christ comes beaming in and all of a sudden his chains fall off, his heart is free. He rises and follows Christ. This is the reality of what Christ has done. By his mercy, 
in salvation. He has called us forth out of the dungeon of our sin. Amid pitch black darkness, he has shone his marvelous light into our hearts. This beautiful, gleaming, radiant light where we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Our chains have fallen off and we are spiritually resurrected to follow our Savior. And notice verse 44. The man, Lazarus, comes out still in his linen strips. His, faith, uh, his face wrapped with a cloth, and Jesus says, Unbind him and let him go. Likewise for us, as we are brought to life to trust in Christ, our filthy garments of sin are stripped away. They are taken off, and we are given the righteous robe of Christ. We are loosed of that sinful garment, and we are free to take hold of the righteous garment of Christ. Now, there is an application for us, for we who have trusted in Jesus Christ, that we see here in Lazarus being unbound and going free. And that is that those who have been spiritually raised to new life in Christ must now live in accordance with this new life. We do not live in accordance with our grave clothes anymore. We do not live in accordance with our sinful, dirty garments. So Paul says this in Ephesians 4, where he says, put off your old self. Put it off. You who have trusted in Jesus Christ, put it off. That belongs to your former manner of life, and it's corrupt through deceitful desires. Rather, be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is the command. This is the command for all those who have heard the voice of Christ calling them forth to have life in him. We are to live in a manner that reflects these new garments that we have. It's like in professional sports. If you're a sports fan, there are often trades that go on. And I used to play baseball and in baseball at the professional level, you can get traded literally in the middle of a game. So you're playing a game of Major League Baseball. You're playing, let's say, for the New York Yankees. It's the fourth inning. That's like halftime, the middle of the game. And all of a sudden, the coach tells you, right, you're on another team now. You're traded to Oakland Athletics. Over the other side of the country, they expect you there this afternoon. Off you go. And that's it. We'll sort out the move for your family. Off you go. Completely uprooted. Now, it would be outrageous for that player to be traded They'll do it because they get their $20 million. They'll go over there and then they keep playing according to their old team. They've been given this new jersey, these new instructions, and they keep playing according to their old team. That would be absurd. Likewise for us who have received this new garment in Christ, it is absurd for us to go back to our sinful lifestyle. It's absurd for us. This is what Paul is saying. You don't go back to that sinful garment to those grave clothes. You don't go back that way. You live according to these righteous garments. You live in a way that pleases the Lord. You're meant to be loosed of that sinful lifestyle and free to live in a way that reflects these new garments that you've been given. So here is a picture of our spiritual resurrection and then of our responsibility to live in light of what Christ has done for us. Now, all those who have had this spiritual resurrection are then placed on an unstoppable trajectory toward the physical resurrection. So let's focus upon the physical resurrection for a moment. 
Lazarus is resurrected physically, but we must, of course, understand there is a difference in Lazarus' resurrection and the resurrection that we hope for. Lazarus, poor guy, was raised to mortal life. He died again. So Lazarus was not raised to an immortal life, to an incorruptible body. He was raised to a mortal body as a sign of something greater, but he had to die again. So the raising of Lazarus only paints half of the picture for us. And to see the full picture, to see the full picture of our physical resurrection, we must look to the first true resurrection and the first person to truly be raised from the dead is Jesus Christ. He is the resurrection and the life. Paul says in Colossians 1.18, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that in everything he might be preeminent, which this is to say, Jesus being the firstborn from the dead and having preeminence is to say he was raised from the dead as the firstborn to show that he has complete superiority over death and to show that only in him will anyone else ever be raised to true eternal life. He is the first resurrection. He is the firstborn from the dead. He is the only one who has power over life and death. Now we see the initial picture of this as Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Here we see this, this beautiful picture and this comfort. It's a wonderful reality to see this in Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. We see that death simply must yield to Christ because he is the one with power over death. Death by human standards as we think about it from our point of view, is the unconquerable enemy. Even with the greatest of medical advances, the mortality rate will remain 100%, no matter what you try and do. And people these days are literally trying to live forever with all of the medical science they can use, and yet the mortality rate will remain 100%. Everyone will die lest Christ returns. And all of us who live long enough will experience the devastation and grief and anger that comes because of death. It's a horrible thing. But the beautiful picture here is that death is not the unconquerable enemy with Jesus. Death must yield to Jesus. Death must submit to Jesus. As he is buried in the tomb, death again simply must submit and say, you win. You have it. I can't handle it. So Jesus broke death. The one thing that death was supposed to do, it could not do with Jesus. It's as if we see in this picture here of Jesus coming and notice again in verse 38, he's deeply moved. He's deeply moved in his spirit. And it's almost like Jesus is thinking, right, death has had enough honor given to it. Death has had enough attention. All of this wailing and weeping being given over to death. Now is the time that all attention and all honor should be rightly directed toward me as the son of God. So death yields to Christ. Lazarus is raised from the dead and we see that Jesus himself will be raised from the dead. And so the wonderful comfort for us in Christ is that death must yield to Jesus. Even if we succumb, which we likely will, to death, there will come a time where that same voice booms into the graves, where our bodies have rotted away. 
simply bones left. And all of a sudden that booming voice will come in and call us forth. And it will be the loudest voice we have ever heard. And we will be raised to new life as Jesus calls us forth on that last day. I hope that is a great comfort for us. I feel that the, the physical resurrection is probably one of the more neglected doctrines because as I've said before, we in this life, we in this world, this culture are conditioned to prize this life above everything else. What a foolish thing for us to place all our eggs in one basket of this world. We will die. Death will come knocking at the door. And the beautiful comfort for us is that a louder knock will come knocking at our grave, calling us forth to come and enter into the joy of our master. And that is the only hope. And it is an absolute delusion to live in any other way. So we who heard that sweet inner voice, that inaudible voice calling us to himself originally, in our spiritual resurrection, we will hear with utter clarity, with utter precision, the voice of Christ calling us to himself. Now, before Christ demonstrates that he is the firstborn from the dead, he must, of course, die. And the passage here from verse 45 really shows this very clearly. We see on the back end of Lazarus being raised from the dead. Jesus is condemned to death. We see this great exchange here in verses 45 to 53. So we read that although many of the Jews believed in Jesus, there are some who seemingly have malicious intent. They go to the Pharisees, they tell what has been done. And the council gathers together. This is the Sanhedrin, a mixture of the religious elite of Israel at that time. And they ask themselves, what are we going to do? This man performs many signs. And if he keeps going, we're doomed. And verse 49, Caiaphas, the high priest, says, you know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And in verse 51, John says that Caiaphas didn't actually say this of his own accord. Rather, he in a sense prophesied so that Jesus would die for the nation and not only for the nation, but also to gather into one the children of God, which that is to say that Caiaphas had no idea what he was saying. God was in a sense speaking through him to reveal the truth of what Jesus was doing. And this here is a beautiful picture of how God often uses what wicked men mean for evil to bring about good. God perfectly well uses Satan's work to simply further his glory and our good. So although the religious leader condemning Jesus to death, saying that he must die, Caiaphas unknowingly shows us the reality of the redemptive work of Christ. Notice here, just as we finish, this is sacrificial language. He says, it is better that one man should die for the people. This is the same idea as the Day of Atonement, the, the celebration that the people of Israel would do again and again, where goats 
sacrifices would be made on behalf of the people. Remember the Day of Atonement where the scapegoat would be taken outside of the camp into the wilderness and the sins of the people would be metaphorically placed upon the goat and the goat would be sent out into the wilderness as if to show that the sins of the people are transferred and sent far away and then the other goat would be slaughtered and sacrificed for the sins of the people that the blood of the goat would cleanse them. But this was foreshadowing the day where Christ would become the scapegoat, where he would be taken outside of the camp, outside of the gates of Jerusalem. Our sins would be placed upon him and he would be slaughtered. And by his blood, we would be cleansed. And this is what must happen for we who are dead in our sins to be brought to, to life. A sacrifice must occur. There must be an appeasing sacrifice for us to be loosed of our sin and free to follow Christ. Someone must be delivered over in order to take the punishment that we deserve. This is what we call propitiation. Propitiation is this idea of averting God's wrath by means of a sacrifice. As a simple example, it's like if you've ever received a speeding fine. And you might notice that on the speeding fine, it says an expiation notice. That is because the so-called wrath of the government is against you because you have spared and there's a punishment that's going to happen. And in order for you to avert the wrath of the government to expiate the punishment, you have to pay a fine. You have to sacrifice something. You have to pay the money to take away the wrath of the government. Likewise for us. The wrath of God is against us. We owe an infinite debt. The only way to avert that wrath, the only way to expiate it or to propitiate is for a sacrifice to happen. And for an infinite debt, it must be an infinitely worthy sacrifice. So through the cross of Christ, he expiates our infinite debt by means of his sacrificial death. Now, many people in our day are quite averse to the idea of God's wrath against the Son in our place. They're against the idea of God's Son as an atoning sacrifice. See, many people can admit they have sinned, but it's quite another thing to admit that your sin requires such a gruesome sacrifice as the cross of Christ. That's quite another level. But why is it that Christ must be delivered over to such a gruesome and humiliating death as the death of Christ? Why is it that he must die a death that would suggest that he is cursed by God since it is written that cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree? Why is it that he must die such a horrible, horrible death? And a part of this is to show that Christ's death is a sacrificial and substitutional death in proportion to our offense against God which is a horrible, horrible offense. So Jesus is delivered over to the death of the cross on behalf of the people whose sin requires such a punishment as that. Such a gruesome and horrible, horrible death as the cross. It is to show that Christ is the scapegoat who takes away our sins as he is slaughtered in our place. It is to show that Christ literally takes the place of sinners takes the place of you and I so that the wrath of God might be poured out upon him rather than upon us. So a righteous man, as Caiaphas alludes to, must be handed over for the people 
The innocent son of God must be delivered into the hands of wicked sinners so that wicked sinners like you and I can be delivered from the wrath of God into the hands of our Savior. And John finishes by showing the scope of the result of this. He says, Christ dies not only for the nation, but for the children of God who are scattered abroad. Now, this could be referring to other Jews who have been scattered But I believe the more likely understanding is this refers to all of God's children who have believed in Jesus, who have trusted in God himself, who are brought to life in Christ. See, John is very selective with his words, as I said earlier. And the only other time in John's whole gospel that he uses this phrase, the children of God, the only other time is in the very first chapter where he says, all who did receive Christ who believed in his name, that is you and I who have trusted in Jesus, he gave the right to become children of God, children not born of blood, nor of flesh, nor of man, but born of God. That is the new birth. That is the spiritual birth. These are those who are children of God, those who are spiritually resurrected. And so the marvelous reality of Christ's redemptive work is that although it begins with this small, tiny, little people of Israel, it culminates in people from every nation, tribe, people, and language. Our great hope is that there is coming a day very soon where Christ will return with a loud, booming voice, a victorious cry, and he will call all of his people to himself. And we will enter into the joy of our master with a multitude from every nation, tribe, people and language standing before the throne of God and before the lamb, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. That is the wonderful hope that we must constantly reorient ourselves toward that through all of the sorrow and suffering of this life, mixed with all of the joy that we have in the Lord now, there is coming a day very, very soon where Christ will return And with a loud trumpet and with a cry, he will call all forth. And you and I who have trusted in Jesus Christ will enter into the joy of our master. It will be the sweetest voice we have ever heard. And we will hear the sound of praises, the sound of a worshipping multitude from every nation, tribe, people and language, worshipping the risen Christ. And with that comes a great warning because that same voice that cries out to all of his children to come forth will also cry out for the wrath of God to be poured out upon all those who have not bowed the knee before Jesus Christ. And that is the warning for you here today who have not trusted in Jesus Christ. God's wrath remains on you. That voice will come calling for you. And today, being the day of salvation, it may come calling you to trust in Jesus Christ, calling you to have life in Jesus Christ, so that when that voice comes on the final day, it will be the sweetest voice you have ever heard, calling you to enter into the fullness of your inheritance. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this hope that we have Thank you for the voice that has called us forth, that has shouted into the pits of our souls, that has brought new life in us. 
Thank you for the hope that we have that there is coming a time very soon where that same voice will call us forth and we will enter into the joy of our master. We will receive the fullness of our inheritance. Oh, what joy we will have as we sing songs of praise, as we worship and serve the risen Christ for all eternity. Let us bask in that now. Let us meditate upon that so often that in this life now, we would be the best on earth as we think most about our heavenly reward. We praise you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.